Hello and welcome to Max Politics. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette, the publication of Citizens Union Foundation. Thanks very much for tuning in here for this episode of the show. We're speaking here on Wednesday, July 20th, 2022. And my guest here for this episode of the show is New York City Comptroller Brad Lander. He's a Democrat who used to represent parts of Brooklyn in the city council. He's now been in his citywide post here for almost seven months as New York City's chief financial officer. The New York City Comptroller is a citywide independent elected official that has to watch over the city's fiscal and financial health, economic conditions, uh, look at city agencies and other entities affecting the city, looking at waste and fraud and abuse, and hoping and helping to make sure that municipal agencies are doing their best to serve New Yorkers. That includes being a watchdog over the New York City budget and tracking tax revenue and saving and spending. It uh, also includes being a fiduciary to the city's five public pension funds that have a value of somewhere around $250 billion in assets, uh, taking a look at all sorts of issues that affect New York City and New Yorkers. Comptroller Brad Lander with me in just a moment to talk about the latest work out of his office, uh, challenges and opportunities facing the city, and some other things. We'll get with our controller in just a moment. Uh, real quick, if you've missed any recent episodes here of Max Politics, we've mostly been focused on the political calendar and the elections happening. And we're doing a series of interviews with the Democrats running in the new 10th Congressional District, which includes a whole bunch of lower Manhattan and a big swath of Brooklyn, including the Park Slope and other areas that Comptroller Brett Lander used to represent in the city council. Uh, that race has seen a recent shakeup here. The day before we're speaking, uh, former Mayor Bill de Blasio, who was Comptroller Lander's uh, predecessor in the city council, dropped out of the race in a little bit of a surprising development, although uh, the momentum was clearly not there for the former mayor. But we've been talking here on the show with a number of the other candidates in the race, and we'll be talking with more in recent days and weeks. We've spoken with candidates, including Assembly members Yuli New and Joanne Simon, City Council member Carlina Rivera, former Trump impeachment counsel Dan Goldman, and we've got some other candidates in the race lined up. We've also had some other conversations here on the show. You can find them all at Max Politics, where we get podcasts or the Gotham Gazette site, and of course at GothamGazette.com. Find all our latest reporting. Okay, New York City Comptroller Brad Lander, thank you for being here. How are you? Uh, thank you so much, Ben. I'm delighted to be here. I will say, you know, I'm a, a podcast subscriber and regular listener, and I have to say I'm also a voter in the 10th Congressional yes, District, are. and so I really have appreciated the in-depth conversations you're having with each of the candidates and hope other voters are listening too so they can make a, a wise choice. Appreciate that. And uh, I, we've got some time, about a month till primary day, so it's getting close, but we've got some time for people to get caught up on the race and uh, get ready to vote. Obviously, Democratic primary happening in August. August 23rd is primary day. Um, you have not made an endorsement in the race since you mentioned it, that you're a voter there. Are you <laughs> are you leading towards any candidate? Is there anybody who uh, who has particularly enticed you to, to get behind their campaign? I, I, I want to wait to hear all the interviews. And I think you got to <laughs> got to listen to the remaining interviews first. I, I like several of the candidates, I will yeah. say. I mean, I think it's been covered a little bit as a uh, a mess, but if it's a mess, it's a mess of democracy. We have mm. some a, a really nice diversity of different candidates. You know, if you complain, you know, I don't. You know, you've got folks who've been in government, out of government. You know, very um, ethnically and racially diverse. Some, you know, really dynamite women in the race. 
So I, I think it's good that, you know, there is, a, um, you know, getting an open congressional seat and having a really robust debate and getting the chance to look at a bunch of different candidates. So haven't made up my mind yet. You are, uh, of course, uh, often aligned with the Working Families Party and the progressive uh, movement in the city and state, and, and a lot of those folks getting behind uh, Assemblymember Yulene New, including the Working Families Party, but there are, of course, other uh, progressives in the race. It's a very progressive district, so uh, yeah. it, it's been very interesting in watching and, others who are deciding on their endorsements. Making yeah, this one, you know, there's a lot of friends of mine in the race. Yeah. Certainly, uh, Yulene is a, is a friend, and I do do a lot of work with Working Families Party. Obviously, I served in the council with Carlina Rivera. We did work together. I've gotten to know Mondaire Jones and really admire him. And look, Liz Holtzman is a former New York City controller. Yes. Uh, and she was a great controller and someone who I've long known and admired. So it's a, it's a busy, a busy field. And a yes, really yes, interesting yes. Race. All right. Uh, uh, we've got so much uh, sort of government and, and policy and substance to get to here. So as much as we love the politics, <laughs> yeah, let's, let's, let's dig in. All right. So let's let's start broadly. Every month, your office puts out this um, uh, monthly economic and fiscal outlook, which which is really great and fascinating. And that was started under your predecessor, uh, Controller Stringer, I believe. Um, what are the latest sort of big signal posts for us in terms of the New York City economy and the city's fiscal health? Obviously, we're still in the midst of this fairly good, but halting uh, COVID recovery here. And every time we get a new wave, there's question marks. Um, but but broad strokes, um, what, is, what are the latest numbers tell us? Yeah, it's a very mixed signals moment. I think it feels that way, you know, in all the ways that feel kind of anxious and uncertain, that is really reflected in the data. And I would urge people to sign up for that New York by the numbers newsletter, which we put out every month. So you can do it at the website at comptroller.myc.gov. Um, but this month really was mixed signals. On the one hand, there's some really good business and job growth data. We are now back above 95% of the jobs that we you know, had in the city prior to the pandemic. Uh, unemployment is down at 5.7%, which is below where it was at the beginning of the pandemic, and down from 10.2% a year ago, you know, May 22 from May 2021. So, um, and, and we put out this month some really interesting numbers about new cre business creation, the, the creation of new businesses. Um, there were a lot of businesses that closed in Manhattan. Um, think about that lunch restaurant in Midtown that doesn't have people showing up to work. So they closed, but a substantial number of new establishments opened with Brooklyn getting the largest share, continuing a trend. It's the first time that Manhattan does not have a majority of the establishments, um, you know, still the biggest, the biggest uh, plurality, but more in Brooklyn. And one thing that I was really um, intrigued and encouraged by is um, there are 2,285 establishments that opened that don't even have a classification. They don't fit into an existing category of the Bureau of Labor Statistics. So people are opening new kinds of businesses that don't even quite yet fit into our category. So hopefully we're gonna see an era of new business generation of creativity in technology, in healthcare, in a range of new fields. So that's on the positive side. We really are seeing good job growth and business creation, but there's a lot on the negative side as well. Obviously inflation is eating so badly into people's paychecks. The national numbers just came out 9.1%. 
Rents are at just skyrocketing unprecedented levels. So if you're out having to rent an apartment, my goodness, the 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 available uh, median available unit in Manhattan is above five thousand dollars a month, and there's essentially no units on the market at less than fifteen hundred. Um, fuel prices are high. Food prices are high. Um, and we we looked at one statistic that showed that for lower wage workers, folks in the bottom uh, quarter of the economy, um, you know, if you're a minimum wage worker, inflation has eroded your purchasing power back below where it was in 2016 when the minimum wage was just $11 an hour. So, so that's really hitting people in the pocketbook. And then with the Fed spiking interest rates in order to try to get inflation under control, there is good reason for anxiety that will hit an economic downturn and the job growth will slow. And that has big impacts on the city's tax base, on job creation, on home purchase. So a lot of a lot of mixed signals and a lot of uncertainty we're facing. Speaking of the city's tax base, um, I've seen uh, some numbers coming in from the state controller, your uh, counterpart at the state level, Tom DiNapoli, who's going to be a guest on the show in the next couple of weeks sometime to uh, have a similar check in about the state of the state um, finances and and, uh, government watchdog and all that stuff. But um, some numbers that uh, tax revenues have continued to come in really strong and above projections uh, is that the case on the city level? Obviously, um, there's challenges with inflation and how much you know that can be eating up, even in city government expenses. Um, but in terms of and 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 uh, stock market challenges, of course, impacting uh, tax collections. Is the city are city coffers still uh, running over projections, and is that in some way going to potentially create some additional revenue for the mayor and the city council to decide what to do with? Mixed signals here. Also, we did see you know through the end of the fiscal year of FY twenty two very strong revenue, very strong tax collections. Um, as we noted when the administration put out their executive budget in May. Um, we projected, and we were right about this, about $3 billion more in revenue than they projected. And then we just got, uh, you know, you finalized the budget, but then you don't actually see all of the June tax receipts, $600 million higher in June tax collections than we even projected when the budget was adopted at the second week of June. So we did finish the year very strong. But here, too, there are really some dark clouds on the horizon. We started to see the first signs of the ways in which the fall up on Wall Street. Obviously, the markets have tanked and um, New York's income tax collections and um, capital gains tax collections really depend a lot on, on Wall Street. And we started to see in June some of the first softening there. And you're so you're right that um, when when pension funds are down, you know, Wall Street is down about 10 percent year to date. That means the city has to put more dollars into the budget, into the pension funds to cover people's pensions than when they're strong. So, you know, we had a very good FY22 and I want to give the mayor and the council credit. We pushed them to, as a result, put a lot of money in the rainy day fund so that if we do hit harder times, We'll have some revenue and they put we recommended two point five billion dollars for the year. They put in two point two billion in total. Um, uh, Not quite, but two point five, but still a very strong contribution, much stronger. They had only started proposing like seven hundred million and they came up to two point two. So so that was a wise decision. 
but I don't foresee tax revenues continuing to be strong at anything mm -hmm. like those mm -hmm. levels in the year to come between the fall off on Wall Street, uh, the fall off on home sales purchases as a result of rising interest rates and a few other things. And, and, and so is it my understanding that part of what you're saying is that even if there is some additional tax revenue beyond projections that might very quickly be eaten up by um, having to contribute more towards the pension funds but, because of because of the market? Both things. Yes, yeah. I think there's a chance we'll have to use some of those revenues to do that. But also, you know, look, with the Fed spiking interest rates, I think there's just a real reason to be anxious that we'll, we'll see an economic cooling. We won't continue job creation at the pace we've seen it. And then tax revenues themselves come off the Wall Street returns. So I don't right. think the strong, I don't think tax revenues, we don't project that tax revenues will continue to be as strong in the coming fiscal year as they were in the last one. And um, and that that was actually leading me into the question of would there be you know more tax revenue for the mayor and the council to put towards this issue of school budgets? But let's get to that in one sec. Just one okay. more question. Just one yep. more question on the stock market and the pension funds. When there is a, a really challenging stock market, a challenging stock market period like we've seen year to date, these are your first months as controller uh, fiduciary, fiduciary to the um, pension funds. Is there any? Is there any way in which you and, and the pension funds and the asset management team react uh, to these conditions or are things uh, it's not severe enough or, you know, the, things are so long uh, planned long term that there aren't a lot of swift actions to be taken? How do you adjust to a period like this, if at all, to avoid the possibility or, or, or soften the blow that the city will have to contribute more hundreds of millions or, or even billions of dollars from the operating budget to the, the pension returns? Really important question. First, let me just assure any pensioner listening, any New York City retiree, your pensions are solid. Our system is well-funded. Uh, you know, there's over $250 billion in the pension funds. Um, and it's a pretty wise system that takes the long-term view. Um, so when we have a really good year, like we did last year, last year returns were above 25%. And that meant that $8 billion essentially uh, was earned that didn't have to come out of city coffers. And we've got a process that smooths both the good years and the bad years out over a five-year period. So when we have a really good year, that means over the next five years, the city contributes a little less. And that means when we have a bad year over the next five years, the city contributes a little more. We actually think the strong returns from FY21 will outweigh the weak returns from FY22 and will actually wind up net a little positive if you were just looking at those two years, for example. But it's a five-year smoothing. It's a really wise process. And what that means we do at the controller's office in the Bureau of Asset Management is take the long-term approach. We're not day traders. We don't, we're not worried about this year's, you know, no one's making money on this year's returns. We need the money to be there over the long term as people retire. Um, we have over time a 7% target on average, and we've hit that well if you look over a 10-year span. So we are looking at some things. I went to Albany this year to ask for the legislature to give us a little bit more flexibility 
In our pension investments, we have been required to be 75% in fairly traditional plain vanilla stocks and bonds and only 25% with room for investments in infrastructure and private equity and real estate and alternative credit. And most places have more than that quarter. So we got the, the legislature passed legislation that would let us go up to 35% instead of 25% in some of those alternatives, which we think probably makes sense for the long term. And we'll start to do a new asset, what's called an asset allocation, where folks really dig in and say, how do we balance between how much in stocks, how much in bonds, how much in real estate, how much in private equity? Um, and you're doing that, you know, and we'll be doing that now a bit more with an eye toward an inflationary period that we think will be in. But you got to take the long term view when you're, mm -hmm. you know, dealing with pension funds. And, uh, and that's how we do things here. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, more we could get to there, but let's talk school budgets. Uh, one of the most uh, sort of controversial and important topics being uh, discussed and, and debated these days. Yes. And uh, the the New York City schools are slated for somewhere in the neighborhood of, of $300 million in funding reductions uh, through the budget that was passed in June. The city council agreeing to a budget with Mayor Eric Adams uh, weeks before the budget deadline. Now, you're a city council veteran. That's that's happened plenty of times before. But very quickly, city council members then realizing um, that they sort of went along with or gave permission to the mayor and the Department of Education to make these school cuts, getting a lot of blowback. Uh, you have testified to the city council that you want to see these uh, school reductions undone largely by using federal COVID relief that the city still has access to. The mayor has said he is accessing some of that to, to soften the blow, but that these reductions are necessary basically based on dropping school enrollment and uh, school funding is, is in part based on a student uh, enrollment formula. So what is, the, what is the status of the situation and what are you calling on the city uh, to do about it? Yeah. So let me give a little background here. You know, the, the city's budget for schools is over $30 billion. That's from our own property tax revenue. That's the biggest single source. That's not on a per student basis. We collect tax revenue. Uh, with some of the state money is per student, but on a pretty slow rolling formula. And they substantially increased what they're giving us uh, as a result of the campaign for fiscal equity lawsuit. So there's more money there that will be continuing on a long-term basis. And then the city got $7 billion that it can spend over four years in federal pandemic aid, the whole purpose of which was to help schools survive this devastating hit. Um, some of that at the beginning, just for the basics of, you know, enabling the schools to operate safely. But most of it, we still have over $4 billion left that is unspent, um, is to help schools recover. And schools have been so badly damaged and we wanna make sure that they can help show up for all their kids. Um, so the money for schools in total went up $30 billion. In the preliminary budget, the administration did tell the council, we're gonna cut money to schools that have seen declining enrollments by $215 million. But that doesn't sound like a lot, right? That's less than 1% of the overall budget. So I think what that sounded to people like was, okay, some schools will get cuts, but it'll be like 1% or less. And then the letters went out to schools, basically at the exact moment that the budget agreement was reached and people saw just how much bigger it was. We tallied it up. First of all, it's 
if you're just looking, so 77% of schools got budget cuts from, you know, sent to them from the Department of Education. We think your enrollment is going to be down even further in September. So we're cutting your budget on average by $400,000. That's 8% on average of schools' budgets. And it tallied to $469 million, much more than the 215. Some schools, 23% of schools did get an increase, but that doesn't help the 77% of schools mm -hmm. who got cut. And you know, some schools got cuts of over a million dollars, but even 400,000, you're accessing teachers or eliminating your art or music program, or maybe you hired a second guidance counselor to help people during the pandemic. And I've talked to principals who've had to eliminate all those things, their last art or music program, a guidance counselor they hired specifically to help with pandemic recovery, or who had had four sections of third grades and four sections of fourth grades. They had 100 students in that grade, so that meant about 25 kids in a class, but now they're going to have to access one of those fourth grade teachers. And so even if they're down to 90 kids, that's 30 kids in a class, so larger class size, less support right at the time when they most need to be able to show up for the kids in the fall. So yes, that there is, as I said, so what it would cost to make all those schools whole just for one more year, just not make those cuts come right now, is on the order of $400 million. We have $4 billion remaining in pandemic relief. And, and to make a little finer point, it was not easy for the schools to spend all their pandemic money this year. Uh, it was, you know, in a lot of cases, hard to get people to come do extra tutoring. So we believe the Department of Education is rolling over $640 million of pandemic money that they intended to spend in fiscal year 22 uh, that did not get spent. They, they intended to spend about $3 billion. They spent about $2.4, $640 billion being rolled over to FY23. So let's just take a chunk of that rolled over pandemic federal money and say to the principals, you don't have to make those cuts this fall. Look, we do need a longer term conversation about how to deal with enrollment decline. Um, what targets do we want to set for class size? What can we afford in the long term when we won't have pandemic money? All really important conversations, but we could afford to have them while holding schools harmless for September. And and as the city's chief financial officer, you're not worried about that as just sort of kicking this can down the road a year. You know, uh, sometimes you you if you just keep kicking the can over and over and over again, you could have a problem. But in this case, the money is specifically for this purpose. Like the federal money was to help schools get through the COVID crisis in a way that they could show up for students. And so, no, I, I think we could restore those cuts for the fall and then have a real serious conversation. I mean, that money doesn't even expire for another two years. You know, even if we do what I'm proposing, we would still have three and a half billion dollars of federal aid. We've got another, so we need yeah. to have that fair student funding task force. We need mm -hmm. to make smarter plans. Um, we could talk a little more about what that looks like, but I'm confident we have the time to make wise fiscal mm -hmm. choices without hitting our schools this fall. And in terms of process here, I mean, this this can basically be decided at any time by the mayor and then worked on with the city council and then they they do a budget update, um, you know, yep. at, at some point here. You said in your testimony that um, uh, to the city council about this issue that a lot of the federal stimulus funding is broadly allocated for the coming fiscal years for things like 
3K expansion, summer programming, academic recovery work, uh, gifted and talented expansion, uh, students with IEPs and, and other things. So again, part of the argument from you and others saying to use some of the federal funds is saying, pull some of that, uh, again, a, a relatively small percentage, let's say, but, but a significant one, pull some of that for this coming school year and then reevaluate all of these plans and these expenditures of the federal money. It's even a little better than that because all those things that I, because this was where I wasn't quite as clear a month ago when I gave that testimony about how much would be rolled over that was unspent this year. But that's $640 million that I think we, we projected to be that wasn't budgeted for next year. So those things you just said, there is money budgeted for next year for 3K, for students with IEPs, for a range of other uh, of other issues. But we project there'll be $640 million that had been budgeted to be spent this year that was underspent and mm -hmm. could be is going to be rolled over to next year. We could just use about two-thirds of that to cover the mm -hmm. what we're talking about here. Um, we still have to make these long-term choices. For it's true for 3K as well. If we spend another several hundred million dollars creating new 3K classes with federal money and the federal money runs out, how are we going to continue those 3K classes? So we're going to have some hard yeah. choices to make that will hit in about another two years. The time to start focusing on them is now. We have to set real clear targets. Like what are we trying to get to on class size? What do we think we're going to have from the state and the federal government and from property tax revenues um, and, and, and thoughtfully aim for and get to that. But we don't have to make principals bear the burden of that this summer. The examination you want to do, fair student funding formulas, um, uh, how to you know, really deal with enrollment declines. You know, there's, a, there's a lot of questions around these school enrollment declines around the, the, the sources. And it's obviously a multitude of reasons, but you know, it's been a longer term trend. Uh, birth rates have been declining. There's obviously um, been COVID challenges and people leaving the city and the system uh, over the last couple of years at, at seemingly an accelerated pace. Um, but a lot of people also point to the, uh, the affordable housing crunch that you referenced earlier. Um, are you, how are you thinking about uh, the, the enrollment decline and how to, how to bring families either back or bring new families to the system or encourage people to uh, have children in New York City and stay <laughs> in the city. Um, you know, these are obviously discussions happening all the time. I have peers, uh, you know, I have a five-year-old, I have peers who are, who are leaving the city for New Jersey and other places where they get a lot more, um, you know, housing for the, for the buck. Um, how are you thinking about that issue just uh, quickly? Yeah, well, I think it is all those things, and this is why it's challenging. Like the broader, you know, birth rate and demographic uh, uh, numbers are all across the country. Um, there's some shifting to charter schools. There's some COVID, you know, broader, clear COVID issues. There's no doubt housing affordability is one meaningful part of it. We need to address housing affordability for that and many, many other reasons. I mean, you and I have talked about that a lot of times, and will again and. We got to do a lot more on housing, but it's not going to, you know, I don't think anything we could do will mean that by two years from now, you know, we could provide enough affordable housing for right. parents that it'll change the school numbers. To me, what it seems like we have an opportunity to think about here are some things like class size. Um, let's just use class size for, for a minute as an example. Um, we've wanted to get class sizes lower for a long time in New York City schools. Now, 
I am not so sure about the approach in the state legislation that requires the building of new classrooms. It, it doesn't seem to me to make a lot of sense to say, let's build a whole lot more new classrooms right when enrollment is declining. But what if we said, all right, we are gonna do one of two things. We're either gonna get students in smaller classes of 23 or 24, or in any class that's over, let's say 25, although I'm just making this up, we had a second teacher. That was an idea that my predecessor, Scott Stringer, put out a really good report on. Um, there's some really great models of collaborative team teaching where if you've got a second teacher in the classroom, that person can really focus on kids with some extra needs and you can um, have an inclusive classroom. So there's a lot of great models for this. And then you can get class sizes down without building new physical classrooms. Maybe this is a moment to do that where modest enrollment declines with, you know, hopefully the same amount of property tax revenues going in mean we can thoughtfully aim to deliver better student teacher ratios to students all across the system. And that'll be more appealing to parents. I got to tell you that if you're one of those parents whose kid was in a classroom of 24 or 25, and now next year it's going to be 30 or 31, you're more likely to make that move to the suburbs. You just are. So these things go together. We like to offer more affordable housing, but we really would like to offer the kind of enriching, robust education that can meet all kids' needs better and can have the lower the student-teacher ratios as well. Speaking of housing and, and other topics you've mentioned, uh, you've been pushing for uh, a comprehensive property tax reform that would significantly have to go through Albany. Uh, it relates to the expiration of the 421A uh, property tax uh, rebate uh, system that is uh, meant to uh, incentivize affordable housing and has in some cases, though you've uh, been among those criticizing the program for uh, not delivering enough affordable housing. So, um, without all the background, though, you, you've you've been calling on uh, and trying to pull together a coalition and ca calling on uh, lawmakers to really focus on property tax reform as this conversation around the expired 421A tax break uh, is is very likely to heat up. You you said by the end of this year, you know, they should do something that's very unlikely. It's probably going to be. Uh, uh, you know, for the next Albany session, which begins in January. And it's very clear that Governor Hochul, if she's reelected, will be looking to do something in a, in a replacement of 421A. But you have said, don't just do that. You have to do a comprehensive property tax reform. That is a huge lift. What is being done now to bring together a coalition and work with state and city partners to, to make that a reality in, in, uh, in the future, let's just say? As yeah. I said. You know, yes. this, this year is probably unlikely, but to, well, to make that wanna, happen. You want to shape the proposal and build the coalition this year so that in next year's legislative session, it becomes possible. I have to say, I'm, I'm optimistic might be a little strong, but I, at the beginning, when we started talking about this idea, we should use the expiration, let 421A expire and use the expiration to push bigger thinking on property tax reform. Uh, I felt a little like a voice in the wilderness on it. And I have to say that has grown pretty substantially. So on the day it expired, we did a, a press conference and we had a bipartisan press conference, Republicans and, and Democrats uh, mm -hmm. from all five boroughs, um, because this really is an issue that hits black homeowners in the Bronx or Southeast Queens, that hits folks on Staten Island, that makes the development of rental housing harder. 
Um, and I think there are some simple principles that they're actually, yeah, this has been seen as a third rail issue because there are winners and losers, but there's a way to protect people who have to pay more. Look, I'm going to have to pay more in property taxes to have a fair system. The system has protected homeowners in Park Slope from paying our fair share of property taxes. Um, and that has to change. We need a system that taxes people fairly. Now you can protect the, the retired senior in Park Slope whose home is worth a lot more, but whose income hasn't gone up. Maybe you let them wait until the home sells for uh, the, that particular bill. There's a, a lot of tactics to take to protect people who would be at risk while achieving fairness. But we've got to have that basic principle that across the board, everyone pays the same effective tax rate for the homes they own. And we don't have that now. And it really winds up disadvantaging working class and middle class and especially African-American and Latino homeowners. We can fix that. And then going forward on new development, if we just taxed rentals and condos at the same rate, Right now, uh, rentals are taxed 50% higher than condos. If you, you know, if you're going to build a new building, you're a developer. If you build rentals, you're going to pay 50% more in taxes than condos. So those are two, sim not want to say simple fixes, but straightforward principles for reform. And I believe we are building a coalition that can, you know, use this once in a generation opportunity to make that comprehensive property tax reform happen. So there's a lot of work going on both, mm -hmm. you know, at the press conferences and behind the scenes to build the support we need. Do you have any indication that Governor Hochul, Mayor Adams, whoever the, the uh, main uh, necessary powers that be who have supported a, a, a new version of 421A and talked about the importance of having some sort of incentive for uh, affordable housing development in that way, are thinking about it in this comprehensive way? Has that broken through yet or that's the work? Well, this one thing that makes the issue challenging is how broad a coalition you need. You need change in Albany, you need change at the city. So you mm -hmm. need the mayor, the governor, the legislature, probably the council. So it's a big coalition to build. I guess what I would say is I think there is broad consensus that we need more housing um, and that we need tax treatment that helps us get more housing. Absolutely focus our subsidies on affordable housing, but make it possible for the market to produce more housing just in general. And I also think there's broad consensus that our property tax system is, is broken and inequitable, that it's hard to fix, but that it should be fixed. And that's a pretty good broad consensus to start with. Can we get all the way there where that whole coalition of people are together behind a concrete set of proposals that'll get it done? That's really the work we're we're working hard to do now and have to get right in the coming in the coming months to have a chance for next year. All right, a lot more to follow up on there. We're in our last few moments here, a few minutes here with New York City Controller Brad Lander. Uh, thanks for taking the time. Let me try to just hit a couple of other quick things. I'll give shorter answers. I have to, I I have to throw some of my throw some of my topics out the window, which I knew I would anyway. Um, uh, quickly, this, this big Penn Station area redevelopment deal that's moving ahead, the mayor and the governor announced the outline of a financing plan. There'll be a new entity to monitor it. The state is using a general project plan, which circumvents you know, the city land use process. Um, is your office going to take a look at this deal? Is there a way that you are trying to, you know, there's there's a lot of questions about whether city taxpayers are going to get a good deal here. Um, are you are you going to take a look at this? Should we expect anything from your office on this in the coming weeks or months? 
We will be looking, um, I had a lot of concerns about the prior iteration of the plan. Independent Budget Office did a really good deep dive that suggested that was one that looked like it was giving too much to Bornado and not enough to public transit and maybe leaving the city too much on the hook. I have not yet had time to dive into the details because the devil's really in the details of a, of a, plan, a plan like this, but, but we'll be taking a look in the, mm-hmm. in the weeks and months ahead. You recently released a, a audit on the city's ferry program, which was a signature achievement of Mayor de Blasio, looking at how uh, the accounting wasn't very good there. There was overpayments. There were, you know, you, you raised uh, some new additional questions about uh, the, the per ride subsidies. Mayor Adams pretty quickly then came out and announced some changes to the system uh, that I think at least in part you praised. I don't want to go into all that now. Uh, that was that got a lot of news coverage. So listeners of this program probably saw some stuff on that and can can find it. Um, in terms of audits from your office, uh, the question really is more forward looking. Are there things coming up that we should be looking forward to, or are there things that you've initiated now that you've really uh, you know gotten comfortable in the office that you've asked uh, your auditors to really take a close look at? What can you tell folks in terms of either things coming soon or longer term that you've uh, you've gotten motion. So one thing I'll appoint people to right now is we put up a new audit tracker uh, uh, website because we were uh, for the recommendations that come out of the audits. You know, the audits produce a lot of recommendations. Maybe they get a story for a day, but we didn't have a transparent way of showing the public. Here's the recommendations we made. Here's the ones the agencies agreed to or disagreed with. Um, and here's whether they've been implemented or not. So you can go to comptroller.nyc.gov and check out our new audit recommendations tracker. I think what you'll probably say is less like, wow, it's great they have that new audit recommendations tracker up. And how on earth could there not have already been an audit yeah. recommendations tracker? But we are trying hard to make sure the whole purpose of the audits is to help government change. And you give a good example, Mayor Adams, pretty quickly after we put the ferry audit out, uh, announced that he's planning to do a new RFP to move to dynamic pricing to implement some of the recommendations. And that was great. So we'll follow up and make sure they're implemented and put it in the tracker. We've already done 22 audits. So there's dozens and dozens of recommendations. So check them out. Um, one place I'm really interested in doing more on, of course, is NYCHA. Um, mm-hmm. And at, at NYCHA, something new that we're trying is spending some real time talking to residents and treating them as a sort of audit committee um, you know, they've, they've obviously got a lot of insights into the system. And because we don't have enforcement power when we do an audit, working with people who've got a stake in the system can be really helpful for making sure that when we put out our recommendations, there's a constituency of people really following up to make sure they get implemented. So that's one area that I'm excited to, to, to do some next audits. And not only because I think there's some things we could dig in on, like whether vendors are actually performing on the work they're hired to, and if they don't, what happens, but also because this, you know, model of talking to New Yorkers, in this case, to NYCHA residents about what they want to see audited. Um, you know, we, we made participatory budgeting a thing in the city council. I don't know if we'll be able to make participatory auditing equally a mm-hmm. thing in the controller's office, but I'm excited to give it a try. Mm-hmm. And is there anything else coming related to the Department of Correction? This has been a focus of the controller's office before your tenure, but something you talked additionally about during 
your campaign last year, um, should we be looking for anything else around the Department of Correction and what's happening, especially on Rikers Island? Yes, we're working on some things there. We've already put up a couple of reports. We did a, a deep dive on bail. We did a deep dive on DOC earlier in the year that people can find on the website. But, you know, with the additional deaths we've seen and with, you know, really little reason to believe that change is coming, we'll be putting up some new material there in the coming weeks. Um, last two quick ones. Your uh, wife, Meg Barnett, is the president and CEO of Nonprofit New York, a, a membership ag- advocacy group of nonprofits, uh, many of which do business with the city. There was some reporting in the Daily News about um, you needing, you know, some conflict of interest guidance from the conflict of interest board about approaching any uh, contract overview that your office does. The, the the city administration does the contracting, and then you review those contracts in the controller's office. You're not obviously engaging in, in contracts with uh, these nonprofits, uh, except maybe marginally when the controller's office might be doing something. But um, is, is that something where you can assure people that you've gotten the guidance, the permission. How, how can you sort of sum up where things stand in terms of ensuring that you're carefully crossing the T's and dotting the I's on, on that? Thank you. Uh, you know, trust in government is really important. I take it super seriously and I appreciate the question. We, we sent the daily news article to the Conflicts of Interest Board. Um, I had informed the COIB that Meg had this job at Nonprofit New York back in November before I started. Um, gotten some guidance from them. We sent them the Daily News article and said, we don't even want to have an appearance problem. And it took them all of about an hour to email us back that there is no conflict law violation here. And the reason is for is two parts. First, we don't decide in the controller's office who gets the contracts. We register them at the end of a process where a city agency, the Department of for the Aging or Department of Housing Preservation Development, go through their process. They pick who will get the contracts. Then it goes to the law department, OMB, um, the mayor's office of contract services, and comes to us for registration. And what we're doing is making sure the process was appropriately followed. So um, it's not a, we don't do anything discretionary. We just make sure that the process was followed appropriately. And then the other important thing here is Nonprofit New York is not a lobbying firm. They don't do anything more for their members than they do for all nonprofits in New York. They advocate for the sector and for the field. So they don't lobby on behalf of individual members and we don't decide where money goes to nonprofits. And so as a result of those two things, Coy said, there's just no, there's just no conflict here. Okay. All right, maybe we'll check in on how that's all working out down the line. Uh, lastly, uh, very quickly, we had done some reporting at Gotham Gazette about your, your push uh, around improving um, rooftop solar in the city. And yes. this is part of a much larger uh, effort you have around climate issues that we'll get into another time. Is there any... Uh, progress either recently or coming up around this effort to uh, enhance uh, the offerings and the programming around rooftop solar in the city to make that much more ubiquitous and and move towards the city's climate goals in in with that as a major contributor. We had a great roundtable last week together with Rit Agarwal, the mayor's chief climate officer, and the mayor's office of community climate and environmental justice 
at the city's economic development corporation ironically the very same week that we put our ferry audit out making a lot of Awkward. criticisms of them on the ferries but it really wasn't i have to say yeah. andrew kimball who's the president there was very welcoming and we both joked about it and you know there they had embraced some of the recommendations it was a very productive conversation with largely with solar installers with people in the business of solar installation whether in the financing or the installation itself um, to explore what we can do to really dramatically ramp up rooftop solar. The idea we've put forward of public solar NYC of using city capital to pay for solar installations, even on private rooftops, sort of like a cell phone tower where the city would, would rent your roof, but then be able to build a much more expansive solar array was one of the ideas we explored with them. So we're continuing, you know, this has to be a collaboration uh, with the with the administration, um, and we're having a lot of encouraging conversations. So don't yet, yeah. I mean, I think we're there's more work to do. We won't have anything in the immediate future, but I continue to think it's a really promising idea with the federal government pulling back, both because of the horrible Supreme Court decision and because of Joe Manchin's terrible decisions. With the federal government less able to ambitiously move forward on, on climate. New York City and other municipalities have to step up, and this is one way we can. All right, we will follow up on that as well, as well as many other things. We went a little over time. I appreciate you sticking with it and covering a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, New York City Controller Brad Lander, thanks very much for the time. Always real nice to talk to you, Ben. Thank you. Thank you.